Our Father in heaven, I ask that as we study that you would teach us the meaning of revelation, that you'd help us to understand. And I ask for this gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10 and looking at verse 1. Revelation chapter 10 and looking at verse 1. You might remember from two periods ago that Revelation 10 is in between trumpets number 6 and 7. That is, the fifth and sixth trumpets were in Revelation 9. We went over them briefly, and the seventh trumpet begins in Revelation 11. We're in Revelation 10, verse 1. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. If you try to think of a being that has rainbows around him, feet like burnished brass, described like the sun, that comes with clouds, sometimes referred to as an angel, who would that be? These are all familiar metaphors in Revelation 10, verse 1. And he had in his hand a little book open. That's so interesting, this term, a little book. The Bible is full of books. Is there any little book that would be noticeable if it was open? The book of Daniel would be noticeable if it was open. Why would it be notable if it was open? Because it was clothed by a being that looked very much like this in Daniel chapter 12. And here the being comes with the book being opened. And he sets his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth. And he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. Is Jesus described anywhere else in the book of Revelation with the symbol of a lion? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when he had cried, listen, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now that is so interesting. Seven thunders uttered their voices. And when do we hear about these seven thunders again? It's at the end of verse 4. Let's read about it. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. So here we have a little book open, which we've suggested to you is the book of Daniel. Now, what if we wanted more evidence than my suggestion that it was the book of Daniel? Here's what we could do. We could go and realize that the book of Daniel is going to be opened in 1798. That's from the study in Daniel 12. And then find that the sixth um, trumpet was fulfilled in 1840. So we'd get an idea that here is a book that is notably open just a few years after the opening of the book of Daniel, and is Daniel a little book? No, Daniel is a little book. And Daniel is a little book that's of the same subject materials as the book of Revelation. 
And that would be enough circumstantial evidence to identify the little book open as the book of Daniel. So here's a question. What about the things written by these seven thunders? What's apparent in the context is that there are some things that are to be understood at one point of earth's history and not at an earlier point. The book of Daniel, was it to be understood in Daniel's time? Was it to be understood in John's time? But it was to be understood at some point in the future that would be similar to or parallel to the timing of the sixth trumpet. But even when that little book would be open, would there still be some things that wouldn't be understood yet? You know, even in the 1840s, there were some things that were not yet to be understood. Let me see if I can say this thought to you again from your knowledge of Adventist history. 1798, the book of Daniel is opened. They understood things. They found the timing of the 2300 days. But did they understand what you understand about the 2300 days? Were there still some things that were hidden even at the point that the book of Daniel was opened? And the answer is, there were some things. And John was not given permission to write them. If John didn't write them, then how in the world would we ever learn what they are? Has there been any prophets since the time of 1840? Did she comment on these seven thunders? You know, she did. And if she hadn't, we wouldn't have had much of an idea to have any idea how to understand them. What she said about them is that these seven thunders represented the events to transpire under the giving of the first and second angels' messages. Yes, the seven thunders were a delineation of events to transpire under the giving of the first and second angels' messages. That's what she says. Let me interpret it for you. These seven trumpets revealed the the events leading up to and then the great disappointment. So that even after the book of Daniel was opened, there were still some things that were hidden by the decision of God. Now this is particularly interesting to Adventists because there are some people that really fault Ellen White. Because in early writing, she describes how God covered up a mistake in the figures of the, um, the prophetic chart. I'd like you to know that it's nothing more or less than what we're talking about in Revelation 10. Were there some things that God said not to reveal? Some things that, that he was, John was willing to write, but he was forbidden to write? That's God covering with his hand, if I can use a metaphor things that could have been understood and saying, not yet are these things to be understood. Yes, sir. And since you're looking at it, would you just read it for a direct quote? That few sentences or two sentences. In the order of God, most wonderful and advanced truths would be proclaimed, 
The first and second angels' messages were to be proclaimed, but no further light was to be revealed before these messages had done their specific work. This is represented by the angel standing with one foot on the sea, proclaiming with a most solemn oath that time should be no longer. All right. So that's what I tried to say to you, and there it is. You heard it. And if 7 BC, page 971. There are people today who are trying to place the seven thunders in the future or reapply them into the future. And you should just know that that's just another form of futurism like we described in our last class period. We're moving on to verse 5. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hands to heaven and swear by him that lives forever and ever. Now listen, if you've had any doubt about who this angel is, have doubt no longer. Because we're told not to swear by heaven because it is God's throne, not to swear by the earth because it is his footstool, not to swear by ourselves because we can't make ourselves taller, not by our head, we can't even turn one hair white or black, then can angels swear by those things? Then who alone can swear by the throne of God? That's God. This is Jesus. And swear by him that lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are therein, and the earth and the things that are therein, and the sea and the things that are therein, that there should be time no longer. Let's just pause for a minute. During the time of the sixth trumpet, the 1840s, for example, during the time after the book of Daniel's unsealed in the early 1800s, what particular truth about God is being called to the attention of the world? What does this verse say about God? What's it say about God? He's the creator. God's role as creator is emphasized in particular at that point of our history. What was first published in 1844? Manuscript first published. That was Darwin's Origin of the Species. Book form, 1859. Manuscript form, 1844. There it was, Satan versus God fighting initially over the issue of the judgment. Now when it says there should be time no longer... you can know by just reading the rest of the chapter that doesn't mean we're at the very end of earth's history. Look down at verse 11. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples. So it's not the end of earth's history at Christ's second coming. Is it the end of human probation? No, it's not. Verse 11 says you must prophesy again before many people. Is there any period of, any kind of time that is the subject of this little book open? That's what was closed in the book. When you look at Daniel, chapters 8 and chapters 12, when is it mentioned that seal up the prophecy? It's in connection with the 2300, the 1260, the 1290, and the 1335-day prophecies. That was it. Here we come to a point where the angel says, there shall be time no longer. So those prophecies extended to what period? 
The longest one extended to 1844. The others to earlier times or 1843. So Adventists took a stand on this, and it has been confirmed by the Spirit of Prophecy that the time being spoken of here, well, anyway, it's obvious, isn't it? It's not the end of Earth's history. It's not the end of probation. But there is a type of time in the context. It would be the end of the prophetic periods. There would be no more prophetic periods. Part of me wants to go preach more on futurism, but if I do, I'll never get to my main points today. So I'm just going to drop it and say that if you ever want to study what Ellen White says about this, it will thoroughly inoculate you against the fooleries that are preached from pulpits today on this point. And I don't even mean that the average Adventist pastor is a futurist. It's just a few weird ones, and most of them aren't pastors. They're lay people that have just really... References aren't in my head, but there's no less than a dozen of these statements, and they all say about the same thing, that there are no time prophecies that extend beyond 1844. That. Look at verse 7. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound. So let me ask a few things about the seventh angel. Does he begin to sound before or after 1844? It's very apparent. It's after, isn't it? Because here we are in 1844, and we're talking about a time in the future when he shall begin to sound. And does the seventh angel sound for just a day? There's a period of time, huh? And during the time when he's beginning to sound. So not only is there a time when he's sounding, but even the beginning of his sounding is a period of time. And if the beginning is a period, then the middle is a period, then the end is a period, then the period of his sounding might be a significant period. Did that make any sense to you what I was just communicating? When the seventh angel shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished. What is the mystery of God? Almost as Adventists, we've made a cliche out of this. But it's hard to make a cliche out of something that's so significant. So Colossians 1.27, I think we know it. The mystery of God, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is particularly interesting, Colossians 1.27. Particularly interesting that the mystery of God is Christ in you because just about four or five verses later in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, you have a message to Laodicea. Were you all aware that there's a message to Laodicea in Colossians chapter 2? Would you look there for us, Miss Miller? Colossians chapter 2. And I just realized since I'm recording this, I should be the one that reads it. Um, Colossians chapter 2 and looking, oh, it's in this part, at verse 1. So this is four verses later. It says, For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you, that is the Corinthian, or the Colossians, and for them where? So Paul had a burden for people at Laodicea. 
And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, does that apply to anyone in this room? What it appears to me from this verse is that there are some things that Paul taught more clearly in person than they might be perceived from his letters. Do you see that by reading this? He has a burden for the people in Colossae, a burden for the people in Laodicea, and a burden for those who have not seen his face personally. And what kind of burden does he have for them? That their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love. Does that match anything we learned about Laodicea, one of the problems she has? Remember, she's poor in the gold, and what did the gold represent? It was faith and love, so she didn't have much. And so one of the things Paul had a burden for Laodicea is that they would be united, they would have harmony. And what kind of harmony? A love your brother in type harmony. That's not just an intellectual harmony. That is a spiritual harmony. A love your brother in type harmony. But was that the only, thing, only burden he had for Laodicea? And knit together unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, listen, to the acknowledgement of the, what does it say? Are we close enough in context to say which mystery of God this is speaking of? Isn't it very clear? This is the mystery of God, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Laodicea, she doesn't love each other. The Laodiceans don't love each other enough, but they have another problem. Do they have an intellectual problem? They're not, they're not united in confessing the truthfulness of the riches of this idea that Christ can be in us the hope of glory. They don't understand it anyway. Didn't that what it said, the full riches of understanding of this idea that Christ is in us the hope of glory? Turn back to Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. Miss Miller, was I not explaining something well enough? Yeah, it makes sense, doesn't it? It does. Revelation chapter 10 and verse 7. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, shall be finished. In other words, the character of God's people is going to be perfected. And probation is going to close. As he hath declared to his servants the prophets. But did the prophets talk about that closing up of probation and that finishing of God's work? Well, they sure do. I, I think, for example, of Zephaniah 3, I think it's verse 13, where it says, The remnant of Israel shall do no iniquity. That's just an example. Verse 8 And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel, which stands upon the sea and upon the earth. Now it's mentioning again that he's standing upon the sea and the earth. The last time we saw him standing there was when the seven thunders uttered their voice and these things were shut up. So we knew there was something that wasn't to be understood. You know that point is emphasized again here? It's twice emphasized in Revelation 10 that there was something that wouldn't be understood when the rest was understood. So in verse 8, the book is open. He's told to go eat it, verse 9. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. 
And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. Was the disappointment predicted before the book was understood? The disappointment was predicted before the book was understood. But, as long, but when they were eating it, did they eat it first or were they disappointed first? You know, the first thing they did is they started understanding a little bit about Daniel. And while they were speaking about Daniel, how'd they feel about the book? A beautifully sweet experience. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back soon. He's coming back in 1843. Wait, we just understood it's going to be March 1844. I mean April 1844. Now we understand it's going to be October, and this time we're certain. That's a summary of the Advent experience with, the, with Christ coming back and the dates. And they were so happy. When did it become bitter? Verse 10, And I took the little book out of the angel's hand, and I ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. So now is he going to be speaking about it now that it's made his belly bitter? It's very apparent that he's not talking about it anymore. And what happens in verse 11? And he said unto me, thou must prophesy again unto many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. So where do you see a command like that? That's Revelation 14. The hour's judgment has come, and we're to take this gospel to every kindred and nation and tongue and people. If I could summarize what we've seen from Revelation 10 so far, I will, and then I'll move on. The end of Revelation 10 predicted that Daniel would be a very happy-to-teach book and then a painful-to-understand book then that the Advent people, represented by the prophet John, would give up on teaching. Why would they give up? They would understand, yeah, and they would feel like there was no more hope. Probation was closed. But then they would be told, you must prophesy again. Where else is this great disappointment predicted? You know, it's in a few different places. And I want us to look at a few of them. Turn back in your Bible to Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2. And we're going to look at verse 1. I will stand upon my watch. So did Jesus ever say that we should pray and watch? Oh, he said it in the opposite order. And have you ever wondered what it means to watch? This is the best verse I know in Scripture for explaining what it means to watch. I just tell you that so you can know to look at it. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower. What do you do on a tower in a city? You, and yeah, and what are you watching for? You're watching for the enemy coming so you can have proper warning. And, but listen what he's watching for, and I will watch to see what he will 
say to me, what's the best way to watch for the enemy? It's to pay attention to what God is saying. I will watch to see what he will say to me. Watch to see God's word. But what kind of word in particular? And what I shall answer when I am... You know, if God asks you to watch, he's letting you know that you're going to be reproved. And you need to watch your spirit, because what might you do when you're reproved? Many people that are following God follow him only up to the point of reproof, and then they turn away sourful. We have to watch our spirit. We have to watch, first, what he's going to say to us, and two, what we will answer when we are reproved. Miss... Evian. I don't want to contradict you, but yes. when you say the heat, you're talking about God, the actual heat. Yes. It's still okay. It is. In fact, I'll tell you the context or the verses just before this in chapter 1 is that Habakkuk comes to God and he says, God, I want to talk to you about something. Um, why are you, well, let's just look at it so you can see it. Look at verse verse 3. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 3. Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and and there are that rise up strife and contention. And then look down at verse 12. Are not thou from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, we shall not die, O Lord, You have ordained them for judgment, O mighty God. You have established them for correction. Thou art of pure eyes then to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devours the man that is more righteous than he? You might notice there, Evian, that the word thou is in small case. Pronouns often are left in small case in the Old and New Testament. Verse 12, and why do you make men like the fishes of the sea and as the creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take them all of them up with the angle. They catch them in their net. They gather them in their drag. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they sacrifice unto their net and burn incense unto their drag because by them their portion is fat and their meat plenteous. Shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations? Habakkuk felt kind of nervous about challenging God about his ways of relating to the wicked people. And who is it that has a right to reprove Habakkuk? That is God alone. And you'll notice in verse 2 what God says. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. Now here's a question. Is there a vision that talks about the judgment of God? A vision that lends itself to being put on tables? A vision that speaks about running when you understand it? And that helps address this issue of the unrighteousness going on in the earth? Where would you find a vision like that? That would be the book of Daniel. 
The book of Daniel is the vision that, what does it say in Daniel 12? Knowledge shall be increased and men shall run to and fro as they're understanding it. It's the vision that lends itself to being put on tables. And why should it be put in tables? So that people can run that reads it. Verse 3, for the vision is yet for an appointed time. Now, does the vision of the book of Daniel have an appointed time? You know, there's no time prophecies prior to this in the book of Habakkuk. It has to be speaking of a prophecy outside of the book. The vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak. Is there any vision elsewhere in the Bible that we're told will speak at the end, that they'll have a special message at the time of the end? That's not a hard question. What did the angel say about the book of Daniel? Close it up until the time of the end. When does the book of Daniel speak? It's at the time of the end. I'm trying to communicate to you that we have enough hints in Habakkuk chapter 2 to know that it's speaking about the book of Daniel. That's the one that you should put into charts and put it up for people to run and read. I do have one. Verse 4, excuse me, the rest of verse 3. But at the end it shall speak and not lie. Listen, though it tarry, wait for it. Now that is so interesting. So it indicates that this vision would have a certain time when you'd expect it to be fulfilled. But might you suspect that it is tarrying? You might. And what should you do if you think it's tarrying? You should wait. Now, does the book of Daniel speak about waiting in connection with just after the time of the end? It does. The 1335-day prophecy, blessed is he that cometh and waiteth. Yeah, it's there. If it, though it tarry, wait for it. But listen carefully, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. I don't know any way that it could have been better written than this. A prophecy that would say that there'll be a time when you think it's to be fulfilled, but it will look like it's not being fulfilled, but in fact it really was fulfilled on time, but you should keep waiting anyway because you thought it was going to be fulfilled with the second coming, but it was fulfilled with another event altogether. Habakkuk 2 has a parallel that is so interesting to, to this. Look in your Bible at Psalm, Psalm 73. There are, in fact, three different chapters in the Bible, in the Old Testament, where people dare to um, approach God with the same question. Why do you let the wicked prosper? It didn't make any sense to them. Psalm 73, Asaph was one of those. Look at verse 3. For I was envious at the foolish. This is his explanation about how he had almost lost his way. He said, my feet had almost slipped in verse 2. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. Verse 5. They are not in trouble like other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Who's not in trouble? The wicked, wicked ones. The prosperous ones. Verse 8. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. Verse 11, And they say, How doth God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? 
Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Do you see how this bothered Asaph? Verse 13, Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. So here I am, Asaph says, I'm trying to live a good life. I'm trying to clean up my act. And am I having a good life? Problems, problems, problems are coming my way. What about the wicked, wicked guys? No problems. Me trying to live a good life? Problems, problems. Verse 15, If I say I will speak like this, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. Are there ideas that people have sometimes they don't speak out loud? Because they know people think ill of them. Wouldn't you think ill if you heard one of the students here talking about how it's just not fair, I try to live a good life and everything works out bad for me, and that other student who doesn't, it works out good for them, good for them, good for them. Wouldn't we think something's wrong with that student? But anyway, some of us think that way anyway. Asaph was thinking that way, and he didn't want to talk that way. Verse 16, when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Listen, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Surely you did set them in slippery places. You cast them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors? As a dream when one awakeneth. What did he see in the sanctuary? He saw the judgment. In the sanctuary, he saw the judgment. What was God's solution to the unfairness of the prosperity of the wicked? It's the judgment. What answer did he give to Habakkuk when Habakkuk had the same question? It was the judgment. The judgment is the answer to the question, why do the wicked prosper? The answer is they're not going to prosper in the long run. They prosper in the short term and they get what they justly deserve in the long run, and God makes things right in the judgment. but I got off topic. What I was trying to communicate in Habakkuk 2 is that that very clearly by those, those few, ver- few words in verses 3 and 4, 2, 3, and 4, predicted that there would be a disappointment. Turn back there because we need to observe one more point. I need to inoculate you against error coming in the future. Habakkuk chapter 2. Once upon a time in a land far, far away, there lived a man getting his doctoral degree at Andrews University. For his dissertation, he wrote on this phrase, the just shall live by faith. The question he posed is whether it was like this, the just shall live by the faith of himself, or the just shall live by the faith that Jesus had. Do you understand his question? Is it my personal faith or is it the faith of, that Jesus had? He had perfect faith. And in that dissertation, he mentions that when you read Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, verse 4 says, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. 
but the just shall live by his faith. He mentions that in the Septuagint, this passage is that the just shall live by the Lord's faith. Further, he brings out that in the New Testament, when they quote from the Old Testament, do you know what version they usually quote? They usually quote the Septuagint. Therefore, he proposed that the just shall live by faith means the just shall live by the faith of Jesus. I'd just like you to know that in that dissertation, he quoted widely from Romans 1. He quite quoted widely from Galatians. He quoted from those places because they quote this passage, the just shall live by faith, but he never once quoted from Hebrews 10. I'll tell you why. It would utterly overthrow his theory. Let's turn there for a minute. Hebrews 10 is the New Testament passage that more than any other parallels the thought process or the thought development of Habakkuk um, chapters 1 and 2. Hebrews chapter 10, and we're looking, we could start skipping some verses around up at verse 26. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of what? Of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. Sometimes Adventists forget that there are good verses about death in the New Testament. This is one of them. What does the judgment do? It devours the adversaries. And then it says down in verse 30, For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongs unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. So God will make things right in the judgment. Verse 31, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Verse 35, Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. Apparently, there's some confidence that you could have that ends in great reward that you might be tempted to throw away. We're going to find out what confidence it is. Verse 36, for you have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. Apparently, this confidence would lead you to do the will of God. But there would come a point when you would need something else. What would that be? You've done the will of God, and now you need patience to endure if you're going to receive the promise. What promise? Verse 37, for yet a little while, and he that shall come, what does it say? Will come and will not tarry. So what promise are you having confidence in? That Jesus is going to come back. And so you do the will of God in light of the promise. You tell people about it. And now that you've done the will of God, you, need, you have need of patience. Because he that will come, will come. And he's not going to tarry. Does that sound like anything you've read in Habakkuk 2? It is, because the very next verse just goes on quoting Habakkuk 2. 
Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. So what's the opposite of living by faith? It's drawing back. And uh, living by faith is not casting away your confidence. Whose confidence? Your confidence. Your confidence that Christ is going to come back is going to be tested, the Bible predicted. When you think that the judgment is coming, you're going to find out it's not there quite yet. Have patience. If you don't have patience, you're not going to receive the promise. You're going to have to endure beyond the disappointment, but hold on. If any man does not hold on in, in the point of disappointment, that man draws back to perdition. In other words, that disappointment is going to be a testing ground to divide between the just and the unjust. The just will endure by their faith, and the unjust will turn back from their confidence and throw it out when their confidence is disappointed. Hebrews 10 is a marvelous prediction about the great disappointment. Yes? So are you saying that's the difference between the unjust and the just? We should live by faith, and that's how we shall be saved, because we have patience? Exactly, and the, uh, there's a number of verses that back that up. If you just want to, are you someone who writes notes? Yeah. If you get a pen and paper, I'll just give you a bunch of them so you can check into it. Um, or does someone else want to write it for her to save time? Hebrews 3, verse 6. This passage here, Hebrews 10, 35 to 39. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. Mm-hmm. Romans 11, verses 21 through 23. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2. Matthew 24, verses 12 and 13. And 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 12. What all those verses say is the same thing. The, just, ju- the justified ones are the ones that hold on to the end. You're right, I do. 2 Peter 2, thank you. Verses 19 through 21. That's what those passages say. Like one of them says that he that endures unto the end, the same shall be saved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he's a professor. He's probably a student. The summary of his dissertation is that Martin Luther was all wrong on this idea that the just live by the faith of themselves that really everything here is about the finished work of Christ. It's the faith of Christ, um, his faithfulness, in short, that allows us to live. The just uh, live by the faithfulness of Christ. Yeah, it's nothing to do with your faith. It's just bogus from beginning to end. And in fact, his argument about the Septuagint is helpful in undermining his own thing. So what did they do in the New Testament? They quoted the Septuagint, which was the available translation nearly all the time. But when they came to this verse, they quoted the original Hebrew. What does that tell you about the Septuagint in this verse? It's not reliable. 
Hebrews 10, Romans 1, Galatians, all the New Testament passages say the just shall live by faith, quoting from the um, Hebrew. None of them quote the Septuagint. And he probably wouldn't want to go quite that far, but you sure could take his thoughts to that end. A lot of people don't want to go quite as far as their funny ideas would take them. Turn your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. We're looking here at prophecies of the great disappointment. And Malachi 3 provides a very nice one. It says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. That's so interesting. Here is a message of preparation for Christ's coming, and you're seeking him, and where does he come? That's exactly it. He comes to his temple. Now, Jesus, people were seeking him, and he did come to earth, and did he go to his temple here on earth? You know he did. But let's read more about this. He shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Listen, but who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? For he shall be like a refiner's fire and like fuller soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them. In summary, this is a reference to Christ's second coming in judgment. And when Christ on earth came to the temple, it was a metaphor picture of what would happen when he comes again. What did he do when he came to the temple here? He cleansed it two times. You all remember that? He cleansed the temple. And he's going to return, and he's going to cleanse his church by fire. That was a metaphor. It's both here. Um, so let's look at it so you can see it. Where does he come in verse 3? That's not what I meant. I meant in verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. He comes to his temple in verse 1, and what's he doing there? That's in verse 3. Okay, he's purifying his people. What, now, why do we skip verse 2? Because, because verse 3 answers the question in verse 2, that is, who will stand when he appears? So if I could try to say it like this, it says, you're looking for him to come to earth, but he's going to come to his temple. But who's going to be able to stand when he comes to earth? He is sitting right now in the temple purifying people so they'll be able to stand when he comes to earth. It's just worded beautifully to indicate the nature of the great disappointment. People were looking for him, but instead of coming to this earth to destroy the wicked, he came to his temple to purify his teachers. Your um, syllabi said that this talk was not only about the disappointment, but also about the shaking. And I believe that in this class there are two minutes left. So I'm going to tell you some ideas about the shaking for you to investigate. First of all, the shaking is described in Amos 9.9 9 
as a man using wind to blow away the chaff so only the grain is left. The shaking is a metaphor drawn from a man using wind to remove the chaff and to leave the grain. What is the beautiful promise in Amos 9.9? It's that not the least grain will fall to the earth. Is the shaking trying to shake out weak Christians? It's shaking out fake Christians. Just after it says, not the least Christian will fall to the earth, the very next phrase says, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. Fake Christians. Yeah, no, it's, it's not people who are weak and struggling that are shaken out in the shaking. They're actually made stronger in the shaking process. It's those who, who congratulate themselves and their rightness with God and, and adopt assurance of salvation without having a sound basis for it. They're shaken out. Point two I want to make in my last minute is that there are two different entities compared to shaking winds in the New Testament. John the Baptist spoke about one. He said that um, when he appears, he's going to be like, oh, what did he say? He's going to have his fan in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, and he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable wheat. Um, the winds that are used, well, actually, that's an illustration of the shaking. The better verse is Revelation 7. It talks about the winds of strife. Is persecution going to cause a shaking in the church? A terrible one. In fact, where persecution has happened, it already has caused shakings in the church. In the Chinese Adventist church in the revolution of the 40s, it just obliterated where you thought there were large containers of wheat. There was found to be very little but chaff. Where is that? No. that was in China. I know the Revelation. Revelation 7. Then the other place is in a I didn't give a reference, but you can find it in Matthew 3. Um, then in Ephesians 4, what are the winds in Ephesians 4? That you be not soon carried about with every wind of doctrine. In summary, there are two winds mentioned in the New Testament. There are the winds of persecution and the winds of doctrine. Both are used to shake the um, wicked out of the church, the unconverted out of the church. And neither one ends up shaking out weak Christians. Now that doctrine of shaking can be much more thoroughly developed, but not in 12 seconds. So maybe I'll take some time in a different lecture to develop it, just because I think it's an important topic. Let's bow our heads for a prayer. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would take the principles of your Holy Bible that we've studied today, that you would impress their truth on the minds of each here. We're dependent on you to finish the work you've started. And I ask for this gift in the name of Jesus. Amen.